say this to you because I never in a million years dreamed that what this man had told me would ever come to fruition. And when I told him that Dustin and I were getting ready to start this church, he was the first person I called. Thank you. And he told me, he said, Jamie, he said, I'm connected to you. I have to be. And he said, when God gives me a word for someone, he said, and I speak that word to you, and it comes to fruition in your life, he said, I'm, we're eternally connected. Amen. Amen. And that's a major reason why this is what it is today. Because I'm going to tell y'all, I was scared to death. We've had other people that have spoken words over this. And it's scary, y'all, to walk into the word that God said. And I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm sorry. But I want to tell you this. Because this man right here has a word for us. I ain't preaching. I see you looking at me. I'm not preaching today. I'm sweating already and I haven't even started preaching. This is my pastor. This is my friend. And this is my brother. Can we put our hands together for Mr. Chris Turney right here? Come on. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. On behalf of my wife, who's here with me, my best friends, and Kingdom Reign Ministries, which is a ministry the Lord prompted us to start in Florida. We were sent down there over 10 years ago. I just want to congratulate you on the purchase of the property. What a tremendous blessing it is to see the fruit of the seed of the word of the Lord that comes to our lives. And yeah, it's just wonderful. I, um, I'm a little overwhelmed with God's goodness today. I feel just a sense of just the love of the Lord that he has toward all of you, that he has toward the leadership of this house the pleasure that the Lord has and that you have been diligent and steadfast. And you're all here for a reason. Purpose is still being manifested in your lives. And you know, there's a personal, there's a personal attachment with us regarding everything that we're looking at today. Personal because I've had the opportunity and the privilege of being able to observe your pastor's lives and to watch them, and to see that they have maintained an incredible joy. Isn't that one of the most great characteristics that they possess is the joy of the Lord? It's just beautiful. And quite honestly, I, um, I'm envious at times because I've seen them go through the struggle. Even when I first met them, knowing where their lives were in the moment, but that joy was still there, that joy, and it's still there today, and it is our strength. Also, from a spiritual perspective, you know, um, when the prophet declared to Ahab that it was going to rain after the famine, he said, I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. He heard something before he saw something. He then got down on his knees, and oftentimes in the prophetic, what we fail to understand is, is that the word of the Lord needs to be cultivated through intercession. 
He got down on his knees and he prayed until there was a manifestation of a cloud. And the truth is, is that oftentimes we cast our prophecies upon the hearts of people and we don't cover that and we don't intercede for it until it's manifestation. But I want to say to you today, it is a joy of mine to be standing in front of you to see the fruit of a word that was sown years ago in circumstances and situations that not, did not seem to align themselves with what God was saying. And if there's anything I love about the Lord is he never speaks in alignment with circumstance. He usually speaks in contrast to the circumstance. <clears throat> and so we're just delighted to be here. I love the both of you so much. I, um, I did not know everything that God was planning to do as, as re relative to time, but when I saw the picture of you in that hospital bed, I knew in that moment that you were on the precipice of the greatest breakthrough you've ever had in your life. I also knew that you would live and not die. And you may say, well, how did you know that? Well, let me just say to you, the greatest thing that any of us can have in our life is an unfulfilled prophecy. Years ago, they had bumper stickers that said, if God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, let me help you today and maybe kill a sacred cow. If God said it, I don't care if you believe it or not, that settles it. <laughs> yes, I have a Bible verse to back it up. The Shunammite woman told the prophet standing in the doorway of her room, she said, don't lie to me, O man of God. She did not in the moment believe what he was telling her. But how many know in one year she was bearing, she bore a child and she had that child that came forth. Amen. That's the good news. He's a good father. Can you say amen? amen. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I, 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 really, I really want to just, if I can, I want to come to you and I want to share a word with you that I believe will not only inspire you, because I believe in inspiration. But I believe one of the things that we need more than inspiration, especially within the church and, the, and really the function of church service, is we need transformation. And I think that we've elevated inspiration to the place to where we get people inspired, but when Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday comes, the ether begins to wear off and real life begins to settle in again. And we're trying to figure out how do we reconcile the inspired moment with the struggle that we face every day. And I believe that the way we do that is we allow the inner working of the Holy Spirit in our lives and that we begin to put an emphasis on character development over gift development. And you've got, you've got an open door set before you here. And God does not send pastors to cities. I just want to share this with you because he has raised this house up. He is not sending you to a city. He's sending you to a territory. And he's sending you to a region. And the fact is, is that your influence is not only going to exist within the four walls of any structure or building. Your influence is going to spill out and begin to influence the region, which is beyond just one local city. Your expectation needs to, needs to be that you're going to see a transformative work begin to happen around you. And let me just say to you that you're not contending with the demonic. The demonic has already been dealt with. Oh, I just wish I could get an amen in here. And I know we, like, we, love, we love our spiritual warfare, but I want to share something with you today that hopefully will get you to understand and first of all, let me just give you a biblical reference. And I do this a lot. I'll throw scriptures out beyond what I've given these precious folks back here. He's probably sitting there, oh my gosh, I don't have that one. I don't have that one. 
He made an open show of the enemy. He defeated him. He destroyed him. I want you to know he's destroyed in your life. And if he's in your life in any capacity, he's being used in your life to perfect something in you that needs perfecting. Because in the kingdom of God, we do not run from struggle. The glory of the Lord shines through us in the midst of our struggle. Restoration Church, what a beautiful name. I want you to remember something from this day forward. Your purpose is directly connected to the way you identify yourself, which means that everything God will call you to do, it will be relative to the fact that you have declared that you are a restoring people. But you must also realize that the assignment against you will also be relative to your identity. And that means that the enemy's not trying to stop your function. He's trying to get you to doubt who you are. And he's doing that in your individual life. If he's at work in you at all, he's trying to get you to doubt who you are. How many of you know that the the greatness of what God calls us to oftentimes is so big and so magnificent? And what we have a tendency to do is we do what Moses did. We begin to measure what God's called us to we measure that against our own perspective of our abilities. Now, there's a lot of sports fans in here, I can tell. We have any Lions fans in here? There's a statement in sports, and that is that the greatest ability is availability. Because it doesn't matter how much of a superstar player you are, if you're not available because of injury, come on, somebody. In the kingdom, it's more true. God's not looking for your ability. This church does not have to obtain to some level of perfection or some expression of great gift expression or some some accomplishment that maybe we measure against traditional ways of doing things. The only thing God is ever wanting his people to be is available to him. That's it. God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for surrender. We sang about it this morning, and I love that. Today, I want to open up, and we're going to go to Luke chapter 15, and I'm going to let this be the text. Today, we're going to talk about, many of us have heard the statement, the prodigal son, but I think that we've done this context a very grave injustice, because we usually talk about the prodigal son story, and we usually only highlight one son but there were two. So today I'm not only going to talk to you about the one son. Most of us know that story, but I want to take a minute and also talk to you about the second one. As we look in Luke chapter 15, we're going to go through this rather quickly because most of you probably have the background of it. And it is, um, it is a lot of scripture to read, so I'm going to um, bring us through it. But before I do that, I'm in Luke, who was a physician to the Apostle Paul. How many of you know that he was not one of the 12 disciples? A lot of people don't know that. He was not. All of his writings were done as he researched and sat with the other apostles to find out what happened. He was a record keeper. He was a note taker. As all physicians typically are, he was detailed. I love the way he wrote because he gives us details that oftentimes the other gospels do not give to us. In this particular chapter, I find it interesting that Jesus taught three parables. All of them were about something that's lost. I want you to write this down. 
that sometimes what has lost is more valuable than what we have retained. Because it was what was lost that created action here. It was what was lost that created action. Now, I'm not talking about loss of something sentimental. I'm talking about the value of something being whole. Many of us have an expectation for a partial blessing. Jesus would tell someone after he ministered to them, thy faith hath made thee whole. You should always remember that the objective for the kingdom is wholeness, not a partial blessing, but a whole blessing, body, soul, spirit, mentally, physically, financially. The way we represent the kingdom best is when we're walking in wholeness, not just the partial blessing. I think we settle sometimes because we fall short of the whole. And so when one thing is missing, it's no longer whole. And so I want you to understand that God is into wholeness. It's very important to get, get that at the outset of this. It's interesting because he says that there was a man. And he said this man had sheep and he lost one of them. And I find it interesting that the next parable is, and there was a woman. And she had money and she lost a coin. Even Jesus knew that in this day the women would be handling the money. And then he gets to this, and then he says there was a certain man. And this is representative of something more than just, because he said there was a man, there was a woman. But then he said there was a certain man who had two sons. And the one son, the younger son, he came and he said to his father, Father, can I have my inheritance? Can I have what's rightfully mine? Well, the father simply said, yes, it's yours, you can have it. And how many know that the young man, he took his inheritance and he went out and he began to just waste everything away. And the Bible tells us that he came into a foreign territory and he joined himself with a foreign citizen. When he joined himself with a foreign citizen, all of a sudden, his life began to take on a completely different look. Everything that he had taken from his father was gone. And this friend of his decides to delegate him to a pig's trough where he was eating from the same trough as the pigs. He was alone. He was empty. He was void of any sense of security. He was at a point in his life where he had come to the end of himself. Now, how many know that it's in our greatest points of desperation that sometimes we wake up and realize there's something more for me than what I'm experiencing. I'm going slow for a, for a reason, but I want to pick up here in verse number 15 of chapter 15 of Luke. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed his swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with a hus that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. If you have an actual Bible, I'd like you to highlight, go to my father. 
and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. If I can interject something here, when we begin to talk about our worthiness, it means that there's a deep work happening in our identity. Rejection is a very powerful thing that exists in humanity because it was the first emotional encounter that man had after he had taken and eaten of the wrong tree. He hid from God because he was afraid. Worthiness is something that's attached to how you see yourself, but not how you see yourself in terms of self-elevation. It's how you see yourself relative to what God has said about you. I was being interviewed years ago and someone asked me a question. What is the greatest leap of faith, the greatest step of faith you've ever taken? This individual had known me for some time and had told me afterward that they had presupposed that my answer was going to be something relative to stepping out and trusting God financially or trusting God for ministry or trusting God for a new building that we were going to be using for a church. But that's not my answer. My answer was the greatest leap of faith that I've ever taken in my life is to believe what God said about me. And maybe I'm talking to a bunch of people in here that are fully equipped with the right understanding of who you are. Maybe everybody here has got this wholeness of identity. And maybe everybody here sees themselves correctly. I was not that way. I came out of total dysfunction. My life was full of rejection. I was sexually abused as a child. I was abandoned as a child. I went through more rejection than you can possibly imagine. When I came into the things of God, the one thing I knew is I'd encountered love. But the one thing that scared me was the moment I began to feel called is that there was absolutely positively no way that I could ever do the things that I felt impressed upon me to do because I was not that person. I felt like Gideon. You're talking to the wrong one, God. There's nothing in me that can manifest what you're telling me I'm called to. And I can tell every one of you in this room that the biggest issue we have is that we're walking out of alignment with God, not, as, not relative to salvation, not relative to the fundamentals of our faith, but relative to the way God creates us. I'll never forget the day he said to me, you cannot walk together with anyone if you're not in agreement with them, and that includes me. And you've agreed with me, son, about a lot of things, but you fail to agree with me as it relates to who I've made you to be. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. I've equipped you with purpose. And it wasn't until I began to step into that identity that I began to value something that I believe is a fundamental and very significant distinction. I used to get up every morning and pray four hours a day. I can tell you that when I was in Bible college, I started praying at four in the morning and didn't get done till 8.30. And I remember the day that I was packing up all my books and I was getting ready to go and begin my day in class. And as I was getting all my stuff together, I heard the voice of the Lord come to me and say, you've been coming in here for the last two years and you've been spending all this time talking to me. I want to ask you something. When do I get to talk? Because, see, I'd only understood prayer as a one-way conversation. I was the one doing all the talking. I was the one that was telling God everything that I needed. And I, and I actually, to be honest with you, I was so ignorant, I was counseling God. I was advising God. I was telling God how things needed to be. Anybody in here ever done that? 
Because when situations, circumstances arise, before you know it, you think you have a better understanding of how things should go. And you are giving God suggestions and ideas. God, I've got some experience here. If you'll just take my advice, maybe we can get this thing moving down the road. And that's how I was. But God began to show me something, that there's a clear distinction between talking to God and walking with God. You see, Enoch had this figured out because he walked with God, and God said, man, he walks with me so closely, I'm just going to bring him up here. I'm just going to take him. And I began to understand that when you talk to God only, you set apart some, some time, and we frame it out, and we, 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 we kind of carve it out, and we say, God, this is the hour I'm giving you. And I used to do that every single day of my life. But man, I begin to discover the adventure of walking with him that I can talk to him in the car. I can talk to him at Walmart. I can talk to him at the grocery store. I can talk to him in the shower. Are y'all with me? And one of the things I found out is is that my life began to move away from religion into a real intimate relationship. And then God began to say to me, are you willing to unlearn everything you just learned? I said, why did I go to Bible college if you're gonna teach me something different? And I'll never forget the time he said to me, you have you've silenced my voice in your life. And it broke my heart. God, how have I done that? Because he said, you're only willing to hear things that you agree with. And I can't be God in your life if I can't tell you things that you currently disagree with. And he began to tell me things about his kingdom. And then he said something to me. He said, son, one of your biggest hang-ups is that you think that salvation is only about a change of destination. I want to teach you that it's actually a change of nature. And he began to teach me about regeneration. And he began to talk to me about what it means to be born again. And then he, began to, and then he took me to John chapter 1. And he began to talk to me about this amazing, wonderful thing that we call the incarnation of Christ. And the incarnation of Christ is basically summed up in this, that God became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we beheld him as of the only begotten of the Father. We saw his glory. And it was a beautiful thing, right? That God chose to come down and he became to live among us. And he was tempted in like fashion as we yet he was without sin. And he modeled something in front of us. And that's what God began to turn my attention to. What he modeled in front of us was not how to do miracles. Because every time he did one, he told them, don't tell nobody I did this. I was brought up in a, as a revivalist. I, I, I actually, I love miracles to the point of where they became the objective of my, of my life. And then one day, I'll never forget, he said, I want you to go read Mark 16. And I went back and read it. I only read it a million times in my life. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's wonderful stuff, isn't it? But then he goes on and said, and these signs shall follow them that believe. You see, I thought I had to be a preacher for somebody to get healed when I pray for them. And then he began to teach me, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't have to be anything other than one of my children. But the most significant thing that he taught me about miracles is this. Miracles are not the objective. Miracles is the byproduct. When he said that miracles and signs and wonders shall follow them that believe, it made sense why Peter's shadow healed somebody. Are y'all with me? I think half of you are. I hear a cow mooing. You don't need to work up miracles. Miracles naturally flow through the life of a believer. The issue we have is not that miracles don't happen. The issue that we have is that we've idolized miracles and put them above him. Jesus said a perverted generation is seeking a sign. He didn't say that it's a perverted generation that's experiencing one. 
He said, it's a perverted generation that's pursuing the sign. And I'm here to tell you, you don't have to pursue anything because everything you need is within you. And it's Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. And that you cannot help but see miracles when you just choose to be who he made you to be. Because we're not created human doings, we're created human beings. Well, that's just basic 101, isn't it? See, you knew you were a human being from the time you were little. And he breathed into man the breath of the, his breath. He breathed into the, his nostrils the breath of life, and man became. Does anybody in English know, English teachers in here? You know that became means came to be. You didn't come to do. You came to be. So I want to give you some things about sonship. Look at your neighbor and say, we're sons. We're sons. Did you know that you're sons? Did you know that you're sons? Well, if you didn't, I'm going to teach you right here. Verse 12 of John 1. As many as received him. Have you received him? Have you received him? Okay, good. To them gave he power to become sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. The first thing I want you to know about sonship is it's by faith. It's by faith. Sonship is by faith. When you believe and receive, then you're given something. Now, this word here is power, but it's actually the Greek word exosia. And you know what that word means? It means authority, delegated authority, and it means privilege. We are privileged and we are authorized and delegated to be sons of God. Now, this is significant because I'm going to contrast this in just a moment with something that I think that we've usually lived by. But John 1.12 tells us that it's by faith and that sonship is a delegation, it's an authorization. In other words, there's something that's at work in you and I, according to Scripture. It says that he will do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask, ever ask or think. How many think that's a great Scripture? Right? He's going to blow our mind with stuff. That's, turny, that's the turny version. He's going to blow our mind with stuff. I mean, he's going to just show up and things are going to happen and we're going to go, wow, that was incredible. And he's doing that and he's doing it in accordance with something that's at work in us. Most of us think that the power that's at work in us is to do some ministerial expression, but really the power that's at work in us is to reveal to us that we're his children. Because until we realize that we're his children, we're going to operate in a different kind of function that is going to become religious. It's going to be based on obligation, and we're never going to measure up to it. We're never going to be qualified to do those things if we think that it's based upon our abilities. God never called you to do something that you did not need him to help you with. If you want to know if God is speaking to you, I'll give you one little uh, evidence that he's speaking to you. If you think God's talking to you, here's one way you can determine it. If you can do what you believe God told you to do without him, he wasn't talking to you. He will never tell you to do something that you can do without him. You need to go back and say, okay, I need to hear bigger. I need to hear something bigger. Because God will only call you to something that places a demand on your faith. And that places a dependency on God. That's the one thing that we need to always maintain is dependency on God. The last thing I want to tell you about sonship is it's a legal transaction. It's not a religious one. Romans chapter 8 verse 15 says, We've not received the spirit of slavery again to fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption. 
Do you know that in the Roman times, do you know that actually a father could actually disown his biological child? He could legally go and disown him to where he would no longer be his child. But in an adoption, in an adoption, you could never disown those you've adopted. What Paul is saying is, You've not received the spirit of slavery again to fear. Here's what he wanted you to know. You've been bought with a price. But the way you've been bought is not the way men are typically bought. Their understanding of being bought was that they were becoming a slave. You see, you can't adopt a child without a transaction. There's a legal transaction. There's a financial transaction. He's saying you've been purchased, but you've not been purchased to be a slave. You've been purchased to be a son. You see, when someone is born, they're not chosen. Just what you got. My children, just what we got. And if you have any children, they're just what you got. And some of you go, oh, man, Lord, you could have sent me someone with a little bit of a different personality. I mean, you love your children, but sometimes it's like, Lord, are you sure they're mine? But when someone goes and adopts a child, it's not just what you got. It's a willful determination and decision and choice. That's why the Bible says we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. I want you to know that with God, you're not just what he got. I want you to know with God, you're what he chose. That he looked at you, examined you, knew you inside and out. He knew you're good. He knew you're bad. He knew you're indifferent. He knew your flaws. He knew what was wrong. He knew what was right. And he chose you anyway. You are adopted. Glory to God. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about the fact that, hey, he ain't surprised by my mess-ups. God's not up there going, oh, no, I didn't know he was that bad. I said, I said to my beautiful wife not long ago, I said, man, you know, God knows all my flaws. I hope he don't use it against me, hold it against me. Has anybody felt that way? Because, see, I live with myself. I look myself in the mirror. I lay my head on my pillow. I know me. And I'll never forget the time I was having a counseling session with God. He wasn't doing the counseling, by the way. It was one of those moments I was telling him. And I said to him, I said, God, I know myself. He said, you don't know yourself better than I know you. He said, because you only see what you do, but I know why you do it. See, I think we need to stop asking God to deal with what we do and ask him to show us why we do it. Because when God gets into the why, all of a sudden, you doing it begins to change because you begin to realize, wait a minute, I wasn't made for this. I wasn't called for this. I wasn't created for this. Now look at your neighbor and say, the anointing breaks the yoke. Come on, say it like you mean it. You know how it breaks the yoke? That scripture actually means that it fattens. Y'all, when you, we got a lot of people right here that probably, uh, farmers, whatever. When you, when you put a yoke on an, a beast of burden, the yoke goes around their neck. What that means is, is that if you've got a yoke around your neck, 
The anointing fattens you. That's what it means to fatten. I know. Look it up. You don't believe me. You got to look it up. It means to fatten. So guess what? When you're anointed, the things that used to bind you don't fit you no more. It doesn't break because somebody puts their hand on you. It's not an exterior thing. It's a thing that comes from within you, and you begin to say, wait a minute, this thing don't fit me no more, until you become so fattened that it breaks off of you. It's what's happening on the inside of you that God is manifesting on the outside. It's not because you followed all the rules. It's because you let Christ work on the inside of you, and you begin to step into sonship and understand, I've been brought into the royal family of the king of kings. This don't fit me no more. That's good news, by the way. It's wonderful news. And it's good news because of the fact that God is not surprised when you do something you shouldn't. Only you are. And the only reason you are is because you presumed you were too good for that. Well, see, now they're, oh, you can go home now. Adam and Eve were like shocked. They're surprised. They ran and they hid from God. And, and God asked a rhetorical question, where are you, Adam? Well, finally, Adam comes out and he says, hey, I, God, I was hiding from you. And he says, I was hiding from you because I was afraid. And the reason I was afraid is because I was naked. And instead of God dealing with his nakedness, instead of God talking about what he did, God asked him a very important question. What voice told you that? See, the objective is not hearing the truth. The objective is hearing the truth from the Father's voice. See, the devil will use the truth, and he'll use it to condemn you. And that's how he has a grip on some of us, because what he's saying to us, we're guilty of. But when the Father tells us the truth, it don't make us hide. When the Father tells us the truth, it makes us run to him. You've heard the, ad, the, uh, the, you've heard the probably statement that says, oh, no, I messed up. My father's going to kill me. That's religion. Relationship is, oh, no, I messed up. I need to call my father. Yeah. See, when you mess up, you shouldn't say, oh, no, God's mad at me. You say, I better go talk to God. And you know what? He's going to be there with open arms because he loves you more than you could possibly even imagine. Now, I want to talk to you for a minute about his will because I was brought up believing that his will is the thing that I have to do. You want to make sure you're doing his will. You want to make sure that you're in God's will. Who's ever heard that? I know. We always have to kill at least one sacred cow everywhere I go because a sacred cow is a way of thinking that we've always thought that keeps us in bondage. Because anything that ties you to works is not God's will for your life. Because you're not saved by works. Lest any man should boast, you're saved by grace through faith. Are you with me? In other words, you didn't deserve it. He gave it to you anyway. And nothing you did, come on somebody, nothing you did was good enough. And only what he did was good enough. And now that you're saved, it don't mean that it reverts back to everything good you do. It pleases God. 
Because all of our righteousnesses are filthy rags, just like our unrighteousnesses are. God is not interested in your performance. He's interested in your heart. His will is not an action on our part. It's not what we do. As a matter of fact, it's an inheritance. Hebrews 9. I want to look at that real quick. Hebrews chapter 9. This is going to be something that's probably going to create some mooing. But just know this. I grew up. I've been preaching 40 years. And I've come to know some things that have really set me free. I, I was frustrated because the scripture says whom Jesus sets free is free indeed. And I, has anybody ever thought they were free and then discovered maybe a few years later? <laughs> All right. Are you ready? How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament. Somebody say the New Testament. That means the new covenant. That by means of his death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. We'll break away from the King James for a minute. That simply means that by his blood, he was redeeming us from our law breaking of the old covenant. And he's brought us into a new covenant. They which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Say inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. This is legal because the kingdom is about government, not about religion. This is a legal situation. When someone writes out a will, the person who is actually going to leave the inheritance has to willfully put in their will their intent what they want to be left to who? But the will is not enforced until the person that is going to be leaving the inheritance dies. Is that what we're reading here? That's what we're reading. See, the will of God is not what you and I do. The will of God is what we receive. The will of God is what's been left for us. Okay, I, I, let me give you, a, let, me, let me keep reading because some of you are going, oh. Anybody here going, oh, don't admit it. Just keep smiling. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. Jesus died not just to redeem us from our sins, but he died so that everything God wanted you and I to have could come to us. There is an eternal inheritance for me and for you. And that eternal inheritance had to actually be enforced at his death. He had to die in order for everything he intended for me and you to have so that it could be executed. So his will could be executed and so that there could be a distribution of everything that you... And I, I'm here to tell you, who's ever seen one of those situations where somebody goes into a lawyer's office and they begin to read the will? Most of us in the church went into that room and we sat there and a preacher began to tell us what we received in the will. And the first thing he mentions is salvation. 
Once we hear the word salvation, we say thank you, we get up, and we leave the room. We left the room way too quick. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who's the executor of the will. There's more to come. That's why the Bible says, after that you heard the word which was preached unto you. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest or the down payment of your inheritance. Your inheritance, there's a whole lot more in God's will for you than just salvation. That's why he said salvation is only the down payment of your inheritance. Many of us have been satisfied with salvation, and now we start talking about heaven. I've never understood why it is that we get saved and immediately begin to talk about going to heaven. See, if God wanted you to go to heaven after you got saved, he would have immediately taken you there. See, God is not glorified because heaven is full. God is glorified when he is lived through us in a place called the earth. He don't need more glory there. We need more glory here. That's why Jesus said, pray this way. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come here. It's not about going there. It's about getting what's there here. I'm not trying to get up out of here. I'm trying to bring what's there here. I want to see the glory of the Lord in the land of the living. I want to see the power of God demonstrated. I want to see the kingdom manifested here. God did not bring you to this place to make you a spiritual obese people. He brought you here to receive and release, to get the word and go outside of these four walls and manifest the kingdom of God. And so guess what? This goes on to say that we're sons. It goes on to say we're sons. Now, here's the thing. The prodigal comes, I got to finish. The prodigal son comes back. And you know what he said to his father? I'm not worthy to be a son. He goes to his father. Now, watch this. His father's on the porch. He's looking. What's he looking for? He's not looking, he, he's, not, he's not bird watching. There's an expectation in him that at any moment, the one who was lost is about to come home. But you need to remember something. The son did not say, I'm going to my father's house. He said, I go to my father. Then guess what happened? He gets home. He tells his dad, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just make me a servant. The father ignored him. And you know what his father said? Bring me the, kill the fatted calf. Right? 
kill the fatted calf, bring me, my, bring me the sandals, put the ring on his hand. He ignored the fact that his son was trying to be a servant. The father ran to the son, fell on his neck, the Bible said, began to kiss him and say, my son has come home. You see, here's the thing. When you get into a mess and you've lost and wasted everything God ever gave you, you're going to come to the place where you do the same thing he did. You're going to settle for being a servant. And God says, I can't let you be a servant. Oh, my goodness. I, I want us to get this. So, so here, here, then, then he comes in. They throw a party. And guess what happens? And I'm just going to tell you the story because you've probably already read it. If not, go home and, and, and read it. But for time's sake, he, he, his, uh, his other son, the Bible says, was in the field with the servants. And the other son hears from the servants, oh, they're throwing a party for your brother. He gets angry. And he comes back, and here's what he says. He says, hey, Dad, you know, I'm not sure what's going on here, but I've never, transgress I've never transgressed against you. I've been here faithfully with you this whole time. I've never transgressed against, you know, against you in any way. And I've been faithful to stay with you. And his father looked at him, and the first word out of his mouth was, son. Now watch what I'm saying here. The first son is that person who went out into the world, lost everything. I was that son. But I was also the second son. I was the second son that had such a servant mindset because I've been hanging around servants in the field all the, all the time that I came to the realization that if I ever wanted to defend myself against God, I would tell him how good of a servant I've been. And he was angry because he said, the one who went out and wasted everything away, he went out, he sinned, he did wrong, and you're throwing a party for him? He said, I've never done anything wrong, and I want to know why it is that you're giving him a party, and you've never offered me a kid for, for me to invite my friends over. And the father looked at him and says, son, you've always been with me. Everything that is mine is yours. You see, we always talk about the one who went out and wasted everything. And we preach this story, but there's something about the second son that I think is more identifiable in all of us. Because when we come into the church, and we've been in the church for a while, and we look at these other people that are out there living like wretched heathens, sometimes we become really jealous and envy when we see the blessings that come into their life and the celebration of their life. But I was the second son also, because I lived before my father, always defending myself based on how much I sacrificed for him, how much I, how much I gave to God, how many offerings I gave to him, how many prayers I offered, and he He's looking at me and saying to me, you keep coming back to me like you're a servant. You're doing the same thing your brother did. You're trying to be a servant, but I've called you son, and I'm not going to let you be a servant. You say, yeah, but aren't we supposed to be servants? No. He didn't do all this to make you a servant. He calls you sons. Behold what manner of love this is that we shall be called the children of God. 1 John 3, 1. So what is this whole thing about being a servant? You want an answer? Or should I wait till the next time? I'll give it time. 
We're sons that serve. But my service to God is not because he bought me. My service to God is because I love him. The revelation of Jesus Christ given to my servant, John. Look up that word servant. It's not the word servant. It's the word bondservant. Under the old covenant, whenever it came the time of jubilee, when they would release the servants, It was time for him to set the servants free. He said, here's the thing. You can let them go and they will be free. But if one of the servants comes to you and says, hey, I really love you. I don't want to leave. He said, then here's what you have to do. I want you to take them over to the door. And I want you to nail a nail through their ear to the door. And they shall become your bondservant. And they shall dwell with you because they love you and they don't want to leave your house. You see, Jesus has set all of us free. And some of us have taken that freedom. And we've gone, man. Because all things are, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. You see, we're doing this thing, and we may be on our way to heaven, but we're losing out on some stuff because we have never tapped into the true intimacy of what it means to love God. And I want to tell you something very interesting. I want to tell you that whenever this whole entire method of creating bond servants was established in the Old Covenant, it was to point to something real. Because there was a man by the name of John who was one of his disciples. And the Bible says he loved the Lord. And one day Jesus is talking and he looks at everybody and he says something. And man, it caught John's heart. He looked out there and he said, I am the door. Are you with me? He said, I'm the door. Well, something must have really lit up in John's heart. Because see, John knew the old covenant. He knew the stories of old. He knew the methodologies of bond servants. And when he heard that about the door, there was a day when he was sitting with Jesus and now that he knows he's the door he laid his head upon his door and he said I want you to take and I want you to nail because I am not going to be somebody who just lives with you for what you can do for me and that is why whenever it came time for the crucifixion Jesus looks at Peter and he said I prayed for you that your faith would not fail you do you know what that tells me that faith has the potential to fail but the disciple who loved the Lord Whenever Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was all the way to the end. Love takes you to the end where faith cannot because there's three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. See, what I'm trying to tell you is that when you know you're a son of God, when you know you're a child of God, you begin to say, it's not about me following rules. It's about me falling in love with him because if I can just love him, he will draw me into him. Are y'all with me today? Some of you thought that you were called to service and you're not. You're called to sonship.